Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kale Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to our patron, Kesa, um, about all the questions she's got as she is kind of raising her first hopeful conservation dog puppy. We've got a whole bunch of questions. We're going to try to do them kind of rapid fire today. Um, and really excited to get to that. But first, we are going to go through our science highlight as normal. So today, we're reading the article, Back to the Basics with Conservation Detection Dogs, Fundamentals for Success, which was written by Karen DiMatteo, Barbara Davenport, and Louise Wilson. It was published in Wildlife Biology in 2019. The goal of this paper was to um, explore the basics of getting started using detection dogs in ecological research. Specifically, they went over the aspects of study design, dog selection, training samples, handler selection, dog handler dynamics, and field trials. A couple major takeaways from this article include, quote, the potential associated with detection dog surveys can result in the misconception that there is an automatic link between a dog's sense of smell and groundbreaking meaningful survey results. Instead, an accurate detection rate can be directly linked to many caveats in dog handler training, end quote. So they go through. For example, study design, you need to define the scope and the goals of the project first, then decide if detection dogs are actually the best method to achieve those goals. If detection dogs are, then we need to find the best dog for the job. Don't try to make the project fit around a particular dog as problems may arise from that sort of approach. Project planning must include maintenance training and housing for the dog during the off-season, which should take into consideration a working dog's unique needs. Then when we get to dog selection, based on your study design, you will need to consider several factors including scenting ability, physical attributes, energy levels, drives, personalities, and social traits. Things to consider when determining what type of physical traits would be ideal include vegetation, topography, and weather in the study area. You also may need to consider what target species there are and how many, how that may be related to your dog's abilities, such as is the target underground, aquatic, in trees. If you will need to be traveling internationally for the study site, consider the logistics of transportation and how that relates to dog size, local breed restrictions, brachycephaly, etc. You may also evaluate your dog's drive and performance in typical field situations to ensure that they're happy and able to work in such conditions and do not have any behaviors that may be problematic, such as a fear response to the target, urine marking on samples, predatory behavior towards local wildlife, etc. Lastly, you need to determine what motivates your dog, such as food or toys, and make sure they love their reward enough to work for, for long days in challenging conditions if long days in challenging conditions are part of your project. Then when we get to training samples, the authors stress the importance of proper sample storage and sample variety for both target and non-target odors. As far as handler selection goes, the handler must have physical and mental endurance, be tuned into their dog's behavior at all times, and know how to effectively communicate with their dog and understand how environmental factors may affect odor dynamics. A handler's personality must be well-balanced with the dogs. Quote, a poorly trained handler can ruin an experienced dog, end quote. Finally, when we get into field trials, the authors touch on the importance of testing the dog handler team in the field prior to deployment. Trials should be varied, mimic real-world situations the team will be working in, and include both known and blind heights. 
The authors note that using any equipment or gear that the, the team will utilize in the field is also important during trials so that the dogs can become accustomed to working with it. And thank you to our lovely volunteer, Heidi Benson, for putting this review together. And without further ado, um, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you start out with telling us a little bit about yourself and your dog? What has gotten you interested in the world of conservation detection dogs? So I have an academic background in biology and animal science, but have not yet started my master's degree, which is going to be in applied ethology. I had actually applied for the master and gotten the application approved last summer, but when the breeder that I had had my eyes on for several, several years told me that I was on the list to get one of the puppies in the litter, I decided to instead dedicate a full year to just raising the puppy. It was around that time when I first discovered the conservation detection dog field, and I immediately thought that that was something that I wanted to do with my dog. So I got Kinai, my now 8 months old Portuguese water dog, and he's a special guy for sure. Very philosophical, if you can call a dog that. He's a pretty resilient guy who's very even-tempered and doesn't get riled up that easily. He can easily watch children play, people running past, cars and bikers, etc. going by, and just observe it all. The only things that really brings out that big excitement is seeing people he loves, playing with his dog friends, and to search. He really loves to search, and he's getting better and better at it, which is so fun to see, and my hopes are that we will be able to get into this field eventually. Yeah, definitely, and we're we're super glad to have you here, and I know you have a ton of questions. You've got a young dog yeah. right now who's been really brilliant in training. It's been really fun to watch your videos, but yeah, why don't we start just going through the questions you've gotten? As I said, we'll try to, we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. One thing I have did struggle with a bit, was that I could really predict how long the search would be. Uh, in the beginning, it would be like between one and two minutes if I stayed uh, quite close to the toy. Uh, yeah, but he was, as I said, expanding the area and moving quite far away. Uh, but it would take even longer if I followed him. Uh, so that is one of the questions, I guess, whether I should follow him or if I should stay put to make sort of adjust how long it will take to search, if that makes sense. Because if, if I follow him, then he will sort of continue on his way. But if I stay put, then he will eventually come back a bit. I, yeah, so basically we're wondering... In a search environment, do we follow the dog or do we do we stand there um, and particularly as a way to expand or contract your search area? Yeah. And <laughs> this is going to be the answer for all, probably all of our questions. It's going to depend. I think for, for you, ideally right now, what we need to work on is probably searching in more confined environments where hmm. the environment is limiting the search area rather than your body motion. Um, so if we're in like a fenced in park or a backyard or something that will help a lot because then it's not exactly how and where you're moving. That's limiting our search. Ultimately, eventually you are going to be following him because you won't know where that target is. Um, and yeah. we will need to be introducing blind searches as part of practice at some point as well. Yeah. That said right now with a young puppy who's, um, really learning how to search, I would probably, yes, I would be staying put and using my body language and the natural radius that my dog has as a way to help the dog search kind of in the quote unquote correct area. But yeah, ultimately you will be following the dog because you won't know 
where things are. And you will still, you know, like when I'm on the wind farm, if Niffler takes off outside of the search area, I stop within the search area and use kind of that gravitational pull um, to bring him back into the search area. I don't just follow my dogs off into the horizon. Um, but there's kind of, there's a balance there as far as like, I keep my search strategy in mind along with what the dog is showing me. So for you right now, probably, yeah, just stay put where you are and definitely let's try to think through some areas and some ways to set up searches where you can follow him within the area provided. And that won't, um, automatically take him further and further and further and further away from his target. Uh, so then one question that we have talked up a bit about uh, is the thing that during the search he might stop after a while and look at me. Uh, and often if I don't acknowledge it in any way, he will just take off the search again with the same intensity and energy as before. Uh, but I don't really know if that's sort of the right approach. Uh, or I didn't know if that was the right approach. Now I have just like continued to move. Uh, the thing I was trying to do was to like, hey, I don't have a clue. You got this. If you stop, I'm going to stop. Uh, but now I have just kept moving and I think that has helped a bit. Uh, and also we talked about the limitation of search area uh, as well. Yeah, this um, is, this is yeah. another good one with... Barley, when he showed this problem first, you know, three years ago, I would do the same thing. I would avoid eye contact and I would just keep walking and kind of use that as a way to inform him that he needed to keep working. Um, mm. Now, generally, if either of my dogs checks in with me um, and kind of looks at me, I just say, hey, go search, you know, and remind them what they're doing. Give them a little bit yeah. of feedback. Um I, for me right now, re-queuing my dogs, um, if they look at me, it's not a problem. It's not a problem unless it's a problem. Uh, and right now I don't mind having to do that, particularly right now I'm in Guatemala and we're working on kind of a, a much larger search scale than Niffler in particular has ever done before. So I mm. expect to have to kind of reassure him that we're still doing this. Um, yeah. and then as far as the kind of like, Ignoring the dog when they check in with you, I think that advice often works. It's, it's just, it's so, it depends. <laughs> because yeah. if that makes the dog feel disconnected from you or confused, or maybe they're looking at beca you because they've caught target odor and they don't know how to source it, you kind of mm -hmm. ignoring them or checking out could be absolutely the wrong move. Um <laughs> <laughs> so it really depends. And, you know, I think we talked about like, let's try to figure out if that's the sort of thing that tends to show up when he's frustrated or confused or eight minutes into a search yeah. and he's starting to get tired. Okay, great. Then, you know, in the moment we can react one of these two ways, but then on our next search, we want to set the search up so that it doesn't trigger that sort of behavior from him. Mm. And the last thing I'll say on this is I don't mind waiting the dog out. You know, um, a lot of times what I do now is I'll also kind of pause and look back at the dog and let them make a decision. What I'm looking for there, though, is that they're not getting super stuck. Um, mm. If they stop and look at me and then I stop and look at them and then we're just stuck in a staring contest for like two minutes, that's not working <laughs> for me. Um, but a lot of times Barley will do this like when he first if he's kind of stuck sourcing odor, he'll kind of like at some mm. point like pop up and look at me. Uh, and then just to like wait 
And I generally can kind of, I'll take a step back or a step forward or wait or look at him or, you know, cue something. It's all very, very, it depends. It's all very, it feels like a dance as far as trying to figure out what do you need in this moment for me to kind of help support you. And I think the biggest or not one the biggest, but one of the things to be aware of, particularly with kind of waiting them out, is just be aware that of of any behavior chains that you're creating. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe the final maybe the final thing here. There's a lot that could be said about this particular puzzle. And again, so much of it is it depends. But um, I would be really cautious of if the dog kind of like searches, 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 stops, looks at you. I would mm. not then say search and take a step towards your target. I would Mm. not then use that as a cue to make things easier or to handle them in a way that makes their target more obvious, because that is a really good way to teach a dog to just ask you for help in a way that is going to be (laughs) long-term detrimental towards their career. And that's not something you're, it sounds like you're doing, um, but it's certainly Uh, something to be aware of. (laughs) Hopefully not. So the next question is, so when the search happens to be too long, uh, like, there's a difference between just a look at me and then we have the come back to me and stares or even jumps up at me and isn't as excited. If I, like, tell him to keep searching, I can see the drop of energy in him. Uh, and I don't really know how to handle those situations. They haven't come up in a while now, though. but. Uh, should I like do simpler cues, take a break, and then tell him to search again? I have done that a few times, like just a few touch paw, and it generally seems to give him some some of the energy back when I requeue him to search. Uh, but should I like ignore that help? Help me, I can find it. Uh, as I do when I know that he has more energy and will to go on, or should I take it as a blank search and how would I execute that? And or just do I just take the leash and continue walk, or should I just keep on doing these short mini breaks uh, as a way to handle it? Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of I questions would... in one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I'll see if I can kind of <laughs> keep them all in my head and answer all of them in one go. Um, I would go ahead and treat that as a mini break. I would offer water. Um, what I'm doing right mm-hmm. now as the dogs um, kind of come back to me in a search, if they really like are actually coming back to me and not pausing, I have started saying, oh, you want some water? And then offer water to them. And they're starting mm-hmm. to learn that if they do want water, they can come all the way up to me and accept oh, water smart. from me. And if they don't want water, then they can go back to searching. Um, so I've been kind of using like, if they stop and look at me, that's my cue to offer water. And then that's Mm -hmm. their cue to make a decision. If Mm -hmm. I am seeing that they are really tired, they are really frustrated. Then I am cueing them to lie down and I am sitting on the ground with them and we are taking an enforced break. Part of that is due to the heat here in Guatemala. Um, and with both of my dogs in particular, um, they won't take a break if I'm standing up. Um, they will just kind of stand there and stare at me and ask to go back to work. Um, so I have to like fully sit down on the ground with them. Um, but yeah, if you're see, if you're able to see that difference where it's like in one situation, the dog is a little bit confused or just kind of checking in with you. And in the other situation, you're seeing something that looks really different. That really does look like the dog is tired 
and needs a break, I would give them that break. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, you know, over time, what we're going to be looking at is a, how do we prevent that from happening ideally in like our shorter Mm. training sessions? Because ideally we're going to get to the point where the dog can search for at least 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes without Mm. a break. But we wouldn't expect that right now with your age of dog, with your experience, none of that. So the big thing is if we're seeing this come up kind of unexpectedly and we're not actively trying to work on endurance, stamina, duration, mm-hmm. then I would kind of take note of that and try to make sure that in your next search, you're setting it up yeah. to be a little bit easier, a little bit faster, um, and not set the dog up to need those breaks as much. Again, if that's not something that you're expecting. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, definitely. So then the next question would be how much help can or should I give in the sense of walking closer to the toy, calling him to get closer or stay at a closer distance to the toy? Uh, Say if he is running like the opposite wrong direction completely. uh, If that's something I should do, but I also feel like that might get him to think that I know where it is. Or is that more that he will know that, oh, it's good to take her directions? Or will he then, yeah, I don't know <laughs> how much, like, navigate. But maybe that was what we talked about at first, that it is okay to use your body to navigate it a bit. Yeah, I think, again, we're going back to this idea of, like, ideally we're setting up the environment to help the dog mm. understand when and where and how to search Ideally, you're also going into the search area with some amount of a plan. And you know that, okay, we're in this park, we're going to walk the perimeter, and then we're going to walk, you know, down the center bisecting in relation to the wind or something like that. And then having that search strategy will really help you kind of act as if you don't know where it is while still giving the dog some amount of direction. Because the problem Mm. comes if every time you're giving the dog direction, every time Mm. you call him, every time you stop, every time you circle, every time you turn back, it's because he's just passed something, then we can end up in a situation where we've got a dog who just looks to you all the time. Mm. That said, exactly what you hinted at there, there also are times where we do want the dog to learn that, hey, sometimes when I call you back and sometimes when I ask you to check somewhere, it's because I know something and you need to listen to me because I'm not always wrong. It's a really fine balance. Most people go too far in in the direction of, you know, they're always slowing down, they stop talking, they pull out their phone to get a video, whatever, as they get close to the toy or get close to the target and the dog learns to look for that. Mm. But it's also possible to be so paranoid about that, that we get a dog that is like so independent that they're not really taking any direction at all from the handler. Um, (laughs) So it's a balance. (laughs) Um, I think Generally speaking, so if, you know, if you know that the dog just totally blew past their toy or is going in totally the wrong direction, Mm. I sometimes will just call it a blank search. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll go with them for a long ways and then I will circle back around and get us downwind to give the dog another chance at it. But I try to make sure that that takes me long enough and I'm doing it a big enough arc and I do that enough Mm. times in a way that doesn't bring them back to the toy that they're not just learning or their target or whatever, that they're not just learning to pay attention to that. So it's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And that's the good thing about the breed because they are like supposed to work pretty independently so 
I mean, you know, the the handler is a dummy thing that you have talked about. I have tried and I can like just go around in a circle and he will continue search. I can play airplane and he will just be, eh, I don't see what you are doing. I'm just focusing on finding this toy. So I think that it's not as easy to, like with the border collies, it's... Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, not, he's not a border um, collie, but he does keep checking me a bit at least, but yeah, not exactly. as in tune as they might be. <laughs> yep, yeah, breed differences, and again, just kind of being aware of like, I wouldn't, you know, walk... 50 meters with him and then as soon as you get close to the toy start slowing down or stop moving yeah but if you kind of aren't moving the whole time Mm. that's okay or again if you're kind of sticking to a search plan and you know again sometimes we double back sometimes we ask the dog to check here and sometimes that's because there's something unexpected shifted with the wind or you know, we've had it happen where the dog isn't recognizing a training aid and we need to actually make sure that they get rewarded for noticing it before actually making mm-hmm. their final alert. There are other things that could be going on um, that require yeah. different approaches as well. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I think that's the main thing, at least for me, to start with is methodizing my searches and being more planning about it because right now it's it has mostly been like during our walks and i have just thrown the toy out at different places and then kind of winging it i guess Uh, so yeah i definitely need to learn to plan it better (laughs) and also i guess a question about that like how do you know or determine how long a search will be yeah, it's going to be, it's it's hard. It takes a lot of experience, I think. A lot of times I use search area as a rough approximation of that. So if I am searching mm. along a trail or along a road, you know, approximately how far I am walking to place that training aid from our starting point is mm. approximately um, how I'm envisioning that search duration to take you know the search duration may be a little bit longer might be a lot longer than that but that kind of keeps it proportional so Mm -hmm. on one given day i know that i'm gonna walk 20 minutes down uh up down the road and place my sample on another day i might walk four minutes down the road and that will kind of allow me then i know i'm going to be walking down that road and the dog is searching off of the road or the trail as we go um and that's pretty common for a lot of like predator predator surveys in particular you're going to be walking on trails and the dog is going to be checking kind of in the area plus or minus the trails because a lot of predators use trails and therefore poop mm. on trails so that's a good way um to kind of default to it but mm. then you always have the added complication of what's happening with the weather and the terrain and the vegetation on a given day so for example here in guatemala we just had 24 hours straight of rain if it's raining the scent is going to be much less available so it's going to be much harder um yesterday we were training in an area where the let's see i'm gonna see if i can explain this so imagine the wind is coming from left to right and there was a wall on the left hand side of our search area and we were searching kind of along that wall so we were kind of searching in an area where the the air would be eddying 
And depending on, depending on how the sun was hitting the side of that building, we could be getting all sorts of interesting kind of convection. Um, what's the word for this? Now I'm forgetting all my scent, scent terms. But we could basically be getting odor climbing up the side of that building. Um, yeah. So being aware of that as a handler allows me to understand, depending on what the wind and the sun and those things are doing in that exact moment, those hides are going to be behaving differently for me. I know we were mm. going to talk later on about some of the resources to help you learn that, but a lot of it also just comes from experience of watching your dog and really trying to think through what went wrong um, or why did it be, why did the odor behave in a way that's different? Um, mm. You know, it's, these things are not necessarily intuitive to us nose blind humans. Um, mm. But as you get more and more experienced, you can think about those things and understand that if you've got a smaller target uh, on a really, really, really windy day, that might be really hard. If you've got a really big target on a really not windy day, um, that can also be hard. You can have all sorts of different odor dynamics, things that are going on that may make a search take longer than expected kind of just based on the search area. Mm. Yeah, a bit of a follow-up of that, I guess, when we're talking about wind. Like, how do you determine where the wind comes from? Because I find it hard if it's not, like, really windy or snowing or raining so you can kind of see where it goes. But if it's just, like, a normal day, I find it a bit hard to yeah, notice where it's from. Yeah, a lot of times I will be, you know, you get better at it the more you pay attention to it. That's mm. the first thing I'll say. Um, a lot of times you can watch vegetation. So you can watch, you know, bushes, tops of trees, grass, those sorts of things and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Generally as well, if you can't tell based on the trees or the bushes or the grass, that means you've either got really light wind or really variable wind um, or mm. sometimes both. <laughs> so if you can't tell, <laughs> that probably means your wind is very light. So you can also mm. do things like, um, you know, pick up a little bit of sand and drop it and see as it drops where it goes. You can have a flag, I, you know, like a little pin flag or a bit of flagging tape, see where that goes. Um, yeah, I, I think those are probably the best methods. I don't mm -hmm. think generally speaking, um, unless you're for some reason really concerned about wind speed as it relates to a study goal or a question you have, generally you probably don't need to go higher tech than that. So then how do I know if something is just too much for him? Uh, right now, most of his searches are, uh, yeah, I wrote one to two minutes, but that's like a month ago. And now I, it seems like he's giving up a bit after like four or six minutes that I can see a drop in energy. But how do I know it's, if it's, like, too, too much or if I should, like, continue even though I see that the energy might be a bit gone? Yeah. At his age, I would be focusing on making sure that he loves the game, that he's getting success, and he's very rarely getting tired or frustrated in training. Mm -hmm. um, you can always add duration and difficulty later on. We want things to be at a good challenge level where it's challenging enough to be engaging, and it's challenging enough that we don't plateau, but there's so much utility and so much value in particularly for our young dogs, but even for our really experienced dogs in occasionally just doing really fun, really easy searches. Mm. So I think again, at his age right now, 
most things should be easy and fun. Um, and I know you said, you know, right up top, he actually enjoyed it a little bit more when things were a little bit more challenging. So I'm not saying to make it so easy that it's boring. Um, Mm. but, and then as far as how to tell in the moment, you know, it's looking at the behavior. So if you are getting those times where he's coming back and he's checking in with you, he's jumping on you, he's quitting, searching, he's starting to critter, he's starting to mark, he's starting to eat grass, you know, whatever it is that he starts doing when he's not able to focus as much that tells us. Um, and you know, that then, you know, what do we do in that precise moment is going to vary. Um, with a more experienced older dog, I might kind of call them back in, refocus them and then cue them to search again. Um, but with a younger dog, I'm more likely to kind of call it a blank, take them back, tell them how lovely they are, play some games with them, then maybe go out and do a super easy search like the next day. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it kind of depends a little bit. Again, with like a more experienced dog, I might insist a little bit that they do need to work and they need to get back into focusing. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, yesterday, Niffler got very distracted by some crashing waves near our search area um, just during a training run. Um, and he is one of those border collies who loves chasing moving water. And I did kind of, you know, full on be like, ah, nope, Niffler, search, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. When he was younger, I probably would have instead had to say, okay, he can't go find the sample that I placed that is too near the water. This is too hard for him. It's not going to be fun. It's going to squash his motivation. We're going to turn around mm. now um, and we're going to go go back and, you know, uh, call this a blank search. So it, it, it really depends. But again, at, at his age with these younger dogs, the most important thing is that they love the job. Um, so it should mm. be more fun than anything else. So then another question is that maybe I should probably start working with a long line on him. Uh, but I'm also a bit afraid that it might somehow interfere with his search style. Uh, and like how do I best introduce it without causing frustration or like a drop in motivation uh, and what I mean with interfered search style is that he is kind of like <laughs> he likes to range and he runs really fast really high energy uh, <laughs> all over the place basically so I'm a bit afraid that the long line might somehow interfere with that yeah i would probably start out with having him dragging a long line or having a long line that's long enough um that he can reach most of his search area from it so if you're kind of searching in a backyard and you've got a 10 meter long line that long line will probably allow him to reach most of the search area to get him used to kind of dragging it having it on Mm. um and occasionally hitting the end of it um but i would you know, honestly, I have more or less introduced that several months into training by just putting it on and using that as a way to start teaching transects. I have mm. not seen a ton of frustration from my dogs so far with adding that. Um, and it is, it's a valuable skill for them to be able to search with a long line on. I will say like most of the time my dogs search without long lines, but um, it is nice to have them capable of searching with a long line on. Yeah. Then I had a question, like, when should I start training for an alert? So I've started him on a Kong as neutral odor. (laughs) 
Uh, and at the same time as I did that, I started training for an alert. But maybe if other people wonder when they should start to train for an alert uh, and they introduce new odor. Yeah, I also pretty much taught the alert and the target odor at the same time. I generally mm. like having my dogs learn a lot of their search skills using a primary reinforcer, so their toy or food, um, for the first couple weeks to couple months, kind of depending on the age and the progression plan for the dog. Um, I like to kind of be able to see that they understand the game, that they're enthusiastic about the game, and that they have some skills with you know, finding hot dogs or salami or their favorite toy before I really yeah. bother going ahead and teaching a target odor. It's kind of personal preference though. I know other people who are much more gung ho about teaching target odors much earlier on. Um, I personally don't care too much which way my students go. I think the important thing is picking a strategy and kind of sticking to it and not swapping strategies around every couple of weeks because you're, you listened to a new podcast, um, <laughs> which I know I've been guilty of. It's very easy to do. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationist.org slash shop. And then as far as teaching the alert, I think it's useful to start thinking about the components of your alert early on. So I was just talking to another patron, um, Taylor, about this with her dog. She's really struggling with building duration in her alert. So I suggested that they go back and work on duration in other skills. So maybe give the alert a break, but go back and like, let's work on sit stays. Let's work on down stays. Can your dog do a chin rest in your hand for 10 seconds. Um, and then you can kind of build up those concepts and build up those skills mm -hmm. outside of an alert before you start trying to work on this really important behavior um, to you. Um, I think I taught Niffler an alert when he was about six months old, so about four months into his his training, but I also just don't really, I didn't bother when he was a baby. Um, his first four months of training were all just him searching for food and all him learning to love the game and learning to read odor currents and, you know, building a little bit of stamina and all that sort of stuff. And I just wasn't worried about his alert. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, there's a lot of right ways to do this. So how do you know that it's time for a break? I guess like seeing the energy drop in the dogs as we talked about, but like, how do you decide that and how does, it work? Is there like any cue for the dogs? Do they get a reward? Uh, if you haven't found anything like before the break, is it then like sort of a blank search and then after the break it's a new session starting? Like in the field, I guess, when you're working long hours and stuff. Yeah. Again, in training for you at this stage and with your dog's age, we're hopefully not getting to the point where the dog needs breaks. Um, yeah. I know I've already said that, but I just have to say it again. Um, <laughs> For my dogs in the field, um, no, we take breaks all the time when they haven't just found something. Again, we take these micro breaks where if they kind of come back and they look at me or I notice that their tongue is really lolling and they're starting to look hot, I'll call them over, give them some water, kind of let them drink and pant. 
until they're kind of ready to search again. Um, and both of my dogs will tell me. Um, and then less frequently, I will also kind of enforce breaks. And those are the breaks where, you know, I talk to my field tech, I talk to the project partners here in Guatemala. We often have like six or seven people out in our search team at the same time. So I'll kind of call out to everyone and say, hey, the dog needs a break. Um, we're all going to sit down. We're all going to drink some water and we're going to like fully stop moving and wait for the dog's body language and panting, panting to tell us that they're ready to go back to work. Um, and those I will actually enforce a little bit more, which is particularly important for Barley, but I will actually tell him to lie down. I will sit on the ground with him. Um, I will spray water on his belly, spray water on his ears, give him as much water as he wants. And I will not let him go back to work and let him start to search again until I'm seeing again in his rate of panting and his tongue size in particular, that he is ready to go back to work. Um, mm. So it, it's a huge part of it for me. is just kind of keeping an eye on the dog's enthusiasm and heat levels and tiredness levels and, you know, deciding whether you just need a micro bake where it's just a little bit of water and, you know, a, a, a two minute pause or more of the sort of thing where, yeah, you're like calling out to the whole crew and you're like, Hey guys, we're all sitting down. We're all taking a break. <laughs> Um, and again, as I said earlier, um, particularly for Barley, that means that I have to sit down as well, which was funny the first couple times that I did it because, um, the first time one of our project partners thought that I had hurt myself or they thought <laughs> I was really tired. And I was like, Oh no, no, no. I just have to sit down <laughs> to make sure that Barley will also stay put. Because if I just stand there while I have the training bag on, he will then just kind of like stare at me. Um, and like take a couple steps away and then like turn back and look at me and just like keep asking for permission to go search again. Um, but if yeah. I kind of fully sit down, then he understands that no, we're in break land. Yeah. I feel like that might be the case with Kina as well <laughs> in the future because he, uh, he wants to search. He wants to keep searching. Uh, when I put the toy away and it's done with the search, He's not happy about that. <laughs> he will continue to stare. He will continue to beg for it. Yeah. So I'm not really confident that my rewards are good or like exciting enough for him. Like he does seem to love it when I tell him to search. And he has this look of anticipation when he hopes for it and wants to start searching. Uh, but sometimes when he finds the toy, he's more of like, yeah, here it is found it and I mean we do play with it and he gets chicken or ham or uh, other like high value, value treats and I guess we're also improving when it comes to length of search and his enthusiasm is the same so it hasn't like gone down gotten down anything but shouldn't like he seem more excited to find a toy that he's been searching for <laughs> he's like sort of playing with play motivated uh, but not going nuts about it and it's kind of the same with food so I don't really know to, how to do it better. Fundamentally if I'm seeing the focus and enthusiasm that I want in the search consistently it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Some dogs <laughs> are going to scream bark and spin in circles or stop breathing and stare at with you with pupils the size of dinner plates over their toys. And other dogs are going to search very well for the love of the search. 
for the enthusiasm that you give them. And, you know, I think I'm not saying we're asking dogs to work for free in any way, shape or form, but some dogs really love the search and finding the toy is just kind of like a nice bonus. I was searching because I wanted to find a thing, but really I just like searching. Um, and that's not uncommon. Um, particularly with some breeds. Um, so I, if you're continuing to see the focus and the dedication and the enthusiasm that you want, I wouldn't worry too much about your reinforcers. You know, you can always, you can always have more fun with reinforcers. I was just on clean run today shopping for some new reinforcers for the boys, because I realized that (laughs) all four of our, uh, squeaky balls on ropes no longer squeak. So it's time to to order some (laughs) new squeaky balls. Um, because Barley in particular really enjoys the squeaky balls and I'm going to experiment with a couple furry tug toy things, um, with like rabbit fur or sheepskin for Niffler because I suspect he's going to really like that. And I've never gotten those toys before because for Barley, quite honestly, if I had a sock in my training bag or a pine cone or a glove (laughs) or like anything, he would search just as happily with that as his reward as anything else. Like I just said, he really likes the squeaky toys, but, um, you know, he Barley doesn't care as long as it's being thrown. Um, versus Niffler is a little bit pickier, so I'm kind of excited to experiment a little bit. So I think Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with experimenting um, and kind of seeing, you know, ooh, do they like some of those agility toys that have the pouches that you can hide food inside so you can, like, throw it and there's rabbit fur involved and there's food on the inside. Or, like, you know, maybe... Maybe they, maybe he just really likes searching. And again, as long as you're seeing that enthusiasm and that focus, I wouldn't worry too, too much about it. Yeah, I do think that he finds the search itself rewarding because, like I said in the beginning, that he broke the stay uh, to start searching. Now he does not, but he has a beautiful stay and he can stay for like at least a minute while I go around placing the hides, I'm going really far from him. People are walking by, cyclists are walking by, uh, and he just stays and waits. And when I come back, his eyes are like big, <laughs> and he just wants to run away, get the toy as soon as possible, or like start the search more. It's fun to see his enthusiasm, at least, whether it's for the search or if it's for the toy, I don't... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just fun you to know. see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, how do you go about placing the hide without making your trail or footsteps part of it? Because sometimes I feel like Kina might like follow my trail as a way to get to Odor more quickly. I'm not entirely sure that is what's happening. Uh, but it has been like maybe th- two or three times that when we have been walking on a small uh, dirt road and I have thrown the toy as far as I can to the side uh, when Kina is not looking, then we have continued to walk like a few meters and then I've gone off the road and then changed direction direction towards the toy again and told him to search. And then he will sort of run back to the road and then breaching out towards the sides. Uh, so then that makes me think that maybe he's following my trail a bit, at least when we have been walking on the road. Okay. Yeah, I think there's a couple different things that could be going on there. And overall, I actually think I would be a little cautious of mixing searches and walks like that 
too, too much. Mm. Um, I like it to be really clear for my dogs when they're working and when they're not. Um, because especially mm. as he matures, if he gets really obsessed with this game, you don't want him to never be able to go on a walk without searching. Yeah. And then on the flip side, if you're ever kind of struggling with motivation, you don't want a dog who kind of sometimes you're telling them to search and sometimes you're telling them to walk in kind of the same situation. So they might default to walking instead of searching. So I would mm. actually be pretty cautious with that setup in general anyway. Yeah. Um and I would probably instead really focus on like, we're walking when we're walking, we're training when we're training. Those are separate things. Um, Cause you can mm. end up with kind of problems on either end there. Yeah. Then as far as actually hiding things, you've got a couple different methods. Um, I have, you know, just taken whatever it is, you know, if the dog is inside the house or inside the crate, inside the car or whatever, I can take their target and I can just hawk it into long grass, just throw it out there. So there is no trail for them to follow. That works well. I have gotten on a bike and biked down a trail and dropped it somewhere along the way as I'm biking. Um, I've dropped my training samples out of a car as I'm driving yeah. and then parked and then doubled back. Um, and if I'm searching in a park or a backyard or some other kind of indoor area, I will also just kind of like walk around and touch a bunch of stuff. I will pick things up. I will put them back down. I will walk in circles. I will kind of make sure that my trail and my odor is kind of everywhere. Um, so you've got a bunch of different options there. Um, but I think the big thing as far as what you've described there is I would actually probably try to avoid that specific training situation where you're on a walk, you're putting something out there on the walk, and then you're telling them to search when previously you were just on a walk. We want the dog to understand the difference between work and relaxation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when training an alert, how much should I care about the position, uh, like stand, sit, or down? And so far, I mostly taught him to just stare at the Kong, and when I let him choose position, it will mostly be uh, a stand. Uh, but then he tends to get a bit too close to the target sometimes. Especially when I try to make him hold the alert for like just a second longer or uh, because he's like, but it's here, it's here, trying to pinpoint it even more while I want him to keep the distance a bit. Uh, but when he, when I get him to sit uh, for the stay, it is less likely to happen, but I don't know how much I should be like nagging about position or if I should just be like, keep this distance, stare at the toy. Yeah. I think my mind on this has changed relatively recently. Mm -hmm. I think within reason, it's okay to kind of look at what the dog is naturally offering you. But then I think relatively early in training, it's important to pick something and stick mm. to it and train that the, you know, the dog can tell you what's easy for them or what's natural for them to some degree. But I think mm. so often we go way too far down that road. Now we're like, I've had so many students or so many patrons who have said, you know, like, Oh, my dog prefers to stand and then look back at me or they like to nose target and then look back at me or, you know, they spin in the circle three times. And then like yesterday they sat and today they laid down and the dog can just pick whatever it is that they want. I want you to be able to define what your alert is. I want it to be consistent. Mm. Personally for me, 
I really prefer a sit or a down because that's obvious. If you kind of think long-term about what your deployment may look like, you don't want to be questioning whether your dog is tangled in um, some vines out off trail or has a thorn in their paw or is just pausing Mm -hmm. and looking at you or whether they're actually making an alert. You don't ever want to have to ask that question. Um, And obviously, you know, like still it might happen, but we don't want that to be something that's kind of inherently in your alert, which is why I personally don't like, generally I don't like stand alerts. I don't like look back alerts. Um, You know, if it is going to be a stand, stare, freeze sort of thing, I want that to be pretty intensely trained as well. Um, So personally, Mm. I prefer sits or downs because that's something that when my dog is 50 meters away from me in underbrush, I can tell when they're doing it anyway. Um, And that's really important for me. And I think, again, like, don't go too far in this direction of waiting for the dog to tell you and letting the dog decide that's actually not more fair to the dog. It's unclear and that can cause all sorts of frustration and all sorts of issues with your alert training down the line. So I would pick what you want. And as long as that's not something that's crazy difficult for your dog or potentially problematic for your target or your application, Mm -hmm. I would then just train that. You know, if you think about what search and rescue handlers train for their dogs, they're training, you know, barks, find refines, all sorts of stuff. They trained really complicated alerts. If they can do that with their dog, we can train a down stay or a sit stay. Uh, And I I would just kind of figure out what you want between a couple of the the easiest and clearest options and then be consistent about that. Yeah. Yeah, today before the podcast, I did uh, train some of them on the alert. And he did actually offer more like a sit and stare uh today and i was so happy about that i was like yes it's so much easier if you also think this is a good idea yeah exactly so right now we are doing very very easy and short searches with the kong uh, to build the enthusiasm and confidence uh, for the new scent uh, i am not yet uh, incorporated alert uh, because i am afraid that it will like, kill a bit of the joy uh, if I get too nitty gritty about it too soon, so I'm training like the alert and I'm training the search uh, separately. But I do try to like mark before his nose touches the cone uh, and not have him grab it. <laughs> but how do I know if and when it's the right time to start to ask for more proper alert in in the search? Yeah, this this is a good one. I would like to see an alert behavior that I'm very happy with mm-hmm. outside of the context of the search first. I also like to see a search behavior that I'm very happy with outside of the context of the alert. And then I start thinking about bringing those two things together in a situation where the search can be much simpler and much mm-hmm. lower stakes. And then we can increase, we can keep the criteria of the alert and then gradually increase both criteria together. So for example, if your dog is currently comfortably searching, um, you know, for five minutes in a lightly wooded area in a park mm. and looks really good there and is also able to hold their alert for 30 seconds when you're 20 meters away in alert training or, you know, maybe mm. 10 meters away. It doesn't have to be crazy. Um, then we can start thinking about, okay, great. Now we're going to link these two things and we're going to have the dog do a one minute search 
inside, uh, inside the house or in our backyard. It's going to be super duper easy. And I am going to be within a couple meters of them. And the alert only is going to have to like the, the, their chest is just going to have to hit the ground. If we're talking about a down or the bum has mm. to hit the ground, hit the ground. If we're talking about a sit, then we click and we reward. So I like the criteria for each individual skill to be really good. And then we bring that criteria down quite a bit when we're merging them. And then we bring, and then we work on building them back up and linking them together. I will say generally, once I start introducing the alert to a search context and the dog is actually searching and air scenting for, you know, a minute or so at a time and then alerting at that point, I try to only set up searches that are easy enough that I expect the dog to be able to alert. And I try to, from that point over, expect an alert. So once you, once I personally have introduced that alert into the search, then from there, I want that alert to be present. Mm. Um, so, you know, I reasonable people can disagree. I'm sure there are cases in which I've broken that rule myself, but that's kind of generally what I'm looking for. So, and generally what we see as well is, Pretty quickly, if they have both of those baseline skills pretty solid before we start linking them, we're able to build them back up to where we were as far as search difficulty relatively quickly as well. So then I guess the next question would be, how do I go about incorporating the alert into the search? Is it something that you see happen more naturally or do you have to like, oh, you found it, now you have to see it and then I reward? I don't expect it to show up naturally. It may, but I don't expect it to. Mm. Um, I will intentionally set up a very easy search and then cue the alert. Um, so that's part mm. of the reason I like sit or down alerts as well, because that's something that I can verbally cue. So when I see them, you know, make that recognition, do their, you know, their little freeze or that other like kind of final change of behavior that they naturally exhibit, I will then cue mm. the alert and then I will reward and I expect to, to potentially need to cue that alert, you know, for a week or two um, as we're mm. going forward. But the big thing is we're scaling down that search area and search difficulty. And then we're yeah. queuing that alert, expecting that alert. And very quickly they start learning that, okay, so now the game is I do the search. I find the thing. I get cued for the alert. I do the alert. I get my toy or my food or whatever. And then we just start mm. fading that cue out. But I basically keep that cue involved until the dog is almost starting to alert before I can cue. Mm. I try not to get myself into this trap where I start trying to fade the cue too early. And mm. then uh, the dog is kind of getting to source and then waiting, 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 and then alerting. Mm. Um, so it, it, I know that's not super duper well defined, but it's, it's kind of a lot of watching the dog and waiting to see what they're telling you as far as how, how their understanding is going. Um, and if you wait for like two seconds and the dog has not yet alerted, then I would cue that alert, um, and kind of keep going from there. Does that make sense? Mm, yes, absolutely. Uh, before we talked about the look and stare thing and that I should keep the uh, searches shorter. We were in Vermont where we had a lot of forest so we could expand the area and play around a bit with He did an 11 minute search uh, during our stay at my family's place 
but yeah, I do think I pushed too far on that. Uh, I do see a difference in him after those more lengthy searches. Uh, like, he does not look at me as much anymore. Uh, I have not gotten any more of the jumping up at me or coming back and seeing like I'm done with searching. It seems more like, yeah, he might drop a bit in energy, but he will keep searching. He won't come back and jump up and be frustrated about it. And he, when he starts to get tired, and it feels also like he can maintain the energy and enthusiasm for a longer period than before. This is probably not a question, but <laughs> more, uh, I think I see some that it might have done something good, even though I did push a bit too much. Yeah, I think both things can be true. It, yeah. You know, challenge is not inherently bad. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's really important to remember. It sounds like, yes, you pushed hard, but he was still having fun. He wasn't quitting. And then mm. you saw good results on the next search. So I think that tells us that that's okay. The thing that we really want to avoid with challenge is to constantly make things harder and yeah. to push so much that we're getting failure. Um, so it's okay to push. We want to push. We need to push. We need to challenge mm. our dogs. We need to keep them engaged. We need to make sure that they're um, actually, you know, getting uh, a challenge out of this and that they're actually learning and that our training is actually progressing. It's just also really important that they're having fun. And yeah. I don't think difficulty and fun are not opposites, but we need to find mm. the sweet spot where those things combined. Yeah, definitely. The difference I see now is more that now when I'm back in Uppsala, it's a city in Sweden, we don't have, we have gone back to how it was before uh, we was in Wermland. Um, so I guess that plays a part that now they are like at max five or six minutes instead of, but mostly around like three and four minutes. So now he knows that, oh, it can be harder than this, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. And there's always ways to make smaller search areas harder as well, um, which we, mm. uh, we won't open that can of worms right now, but there are always <laughs> ways to make small things hard as well. So yeah. we don't have to feel limited by having a small search area. I have not yet trained him on any blank searches, which I probably should have started with much earlier. Uh, so that is a question like, how do I go about it now? Uh, how do I get him used to it without causing frustration or dropping motivation? And how do I decide when to call it if he like just wants to continue with searching? Uh, because I feel like at this point he will search until his energy is gone. Uh, so say if I are in just or we are in just one room, how much time should I give him, or like how many search lapses of the room should I give before I'm like, okay, now we're done. Yeah, I would come up with your, what your search strategy is. You know, how many times are you going around the room? How many transects are you going to make? How are you How are you going to search the area? Mm. And then when you have completed that, when he has not shown any changes of behavior because there is nothing to find, then you call him away and you can choose to reward or not. I do choose to reward at the end of blank searches, but my reward is basically for Barley. I basically kind of put the toy in his mouth and let him carry it home. And that for him is like a pretty solid reward. Mm -hmm. um, 
for Niffler, he gets a couple tiny tosses um, because for him, just getting the ball to possess it is not enough of a reward. But I don't do the like huge, huge flinging tosses of the ball for him if he just got a blank search. Um, mm. So yeah, it's based on what your search plan and what your search strategy was. Then your other question of, okay, so how do we decide if it's a blank search if we know that there actually was target odor that we placed out in the environment, but they're not finding it? And mm. fundamentally, in a lot of ways, the answer is the same. We come up with our search strategy beforehand. We execute that search strategy. And then if we don't see a change of behavior from the dog, if the dog does not actually find your target odor, then t- then I would, again, just treat it as a blank search. And then it's always interesting to try to figure out what happened there. Did mm. you misplan your search strategy so you actually brought the dog upwind of their target odor um was there something weird happening with the wind or the vegetation that could have been trapping the odor or sending the odor straight up into the stratosphere so the dog just wasn't going to be able to run run into it unless they literally tripped on the 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 target there's all sorts of different things that can go kind of quote-unquote go wrong um Mm. but those blank searches can also be really useful for us as a way to learn how to read odor dynamics and how to get more familiar with that um but yeah i think fundamentally come up with what your search strategy is and stick to your search strategy and what the dog is showing you more than sticking to the idea of you need to find it particularly when we're training alone and particularly when we're never doing blind searches do your best to search and train as if you don't know where it is, which means coming up Mm. with a good plan beforehand. Um, And again, our search plans like this, I'm not talking about something where you have to like diagram your area and like (laughs) figure out like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to walk 23.2 meters in this direction. That should take me 15 seconds. And then I'm going to make a 90 degree right hand turn. You know, like I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, Mm. you know, I'm going to stand in the middle of the room and let the dog free search. I'm going to watch Mm. to make sure that he gets his nose on or in most of the corners and anywhere that he has missed, I will direct him to. And then I'm going to call him back. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to walk a couple transects. Or I'm going to walk the perimeter. Or, you know, I'm going to walk this, uh, walk down this road until uh, my watch says X time. And then I'm going to call the dog off. You know, it doesn't have to be crazy, but we do have to have a little bit of a plan. And then, you know, based on what the dog shows us, um, the last thing I'll say is there may be cases in which, say, say you've placed target odor out, you've gone, you're in the middle of your search strategy, and the dog actually has caught target odor but is struggling to resolve it, is struggling to source it. Those are situations where I would try not to end up with that be a blank search, at least at this point. That's where then it, again, is your job to kind of step in as the handler and support the dog while they're sourcing. So we can implement strategies like spiraling out from the change of behavior, spiraling in from the change of behavior, transecting Mm. or gritting upwind, you know, and again, acting as if we don't know where it is, but strategies that you would actually use in real life. If you saw that your dog seems to have caught target odor and really seems to know that there's something there, but they can't figure it out, we can support that in given strategies that you then could also use on a blank search. The key is to just make sure you're using something that would be replicable, replicable and usable later on in like a real operational ab- search mm-hmm. if you don't know where it is. So on the same topic of like when to end the search, uh, right now we have a, maybe not a problem, but 
I can see and tell that he's frustrated when it comes to ending the search. Uh, he's not like happy about it. Most of the time I let him keep the toy uh, because for him it's like hard that now I'm taking the toy away, now we are ending the search. If he keeps the toy it's more, uh, oh, I can still have that one, but he's still a bit frustrated that the search has ended and he's so high in energy from it, or like aroused from it, so it's easy to get the jumping and a bit of nipping because he wants to keep going and does not want it to end. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how to handle that. What are you currently doing kind of next thing after you end a search? I guess that's the problem that sometimes it depends. Uh, but most of the time I let him keep the toy or at least now I let him keep the toy because that makes it easier for him to like go back into a calm mode if he can carry the toy uh, a bit. But before I took it away and was like, yeah, now we're done. And that was mostly when I would see the jumping and nipping. And the, mm -hmm. I've also tried like to end it with tossing some treats so he will get more calm search, I guess. But he will just search for them and then he will be like, hey, but the thing we were doing before, why? Yeah, why I would... Are we ending that? I would go ahead and listen to, as you and I are recording right now on February 12th, Sarah Strumming's most recent podcast episode on choice and structure, mm -hmm. um, because this is kind of a situation where I think we've got a couple different things going on. So I think, okay, if the solution of giving him his toy and letting him possess the toy at the end of the search and letting him carry that back to the car works, then great. We've got a strategy. Um I generally for Niffler, I, he doesn't really care about possessing the toy, um, and bringing it back. So he gets to play with his ball a little bit. We go back to the car the whole way. I'm telling him what a good, brilliant, smart boy he is and touch, you know, scratching his booty and, you know, doing whatever it is that makes him feel happy and fulfilled. And then we generally go back and I will try to put them down in their crates or in their beds with some water and a nice chew or a little snack um, and really just kind of get like a good post run routine going as far mm -hmm. as kind of the nipping and the frustration stuff goes, that might be something where, again, we need to, I would, I would go ahead and listen to that choice and structure episode from Sarah Strumming and think about, okay, so what do we need to do in those situations to remove his freedom? Because he is showing you that he is not capable of making an appropriate choice in that moment, which means we mm -hmm. need to make choices for him. Yeah. Um, and that might be leashing him, that might be, you know, gently but firmly telling him off, telling mm. him, you know, jumping on me and pulling up my clothes and ripping my jacket is not appropriate and not acceptable. And then also, yeah. you know, taking taking note on, okay, was the search really long with nothing for him to find? Was it really short and he found something and he just still has a ton of energy? Do we need to occasionally do two searches in a row um, do we need to go back and, you know, we've searched up until, you know, close to mealtime so we can go back, we can cool the dog down so that they're ready to eat again and then feed them dinner. You know, what do we need to do to structure that? So I would also get really curious about like when this problem is more consistent, um, or mm. shows up more and when it doesn't, and that might give us some clues as far as what we need to do. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I do think um, we're going to have to wrap up here. So maybe if you've yeah. got one last question <laughs> that you really want to go into, that's great. But otherwise, we're, we got to go. Uh, yeah, I have several left, but uh, let's see. Like, any advice that you might have for our current or future training? I think stay curious. Um, <laughs> trust the process that is given to you by your instructor. And um, I think there was actually a really um, a really good episode from Canine's Talking Sense that I was just listening to uh, with Mary Cabot. Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, um, but that really talked about, you know, I think in a lot of cases, it's better to stick with a medium good training plan mm-hmm. and training mentor than to constantly switch and constantly cast about for new solutions, a new plan, the best protocol, um, and I think that's one of the things that the internet has really done for us. And I'm not saying that just because I don't want you to leave me for a new mentor. Um, <laughs> you're allowed to do that. But I think uh, be really cautious of, you know, balancing that curiosity and learning as much as you can from a lot of different people with also then just don't change your plan- training plan every week. Um, I've definitely talked mm. to a lot of people who are at kind of your level of learning who have had 10 different instructors. They've been to 15 different seminars and it's like every time I talk to them, they're retraining their alert because of the most recent webinar they went to that has them convinced that now they need to do this type of alert instead of that type of alert or they're like retraining their target order or whatever. Um, And Mm. I think that can be potentially really confusing and really frustrating. And also if you're kind of constantly going back to step three, every time you go to a new webinar or new seminar, then it's going to be really hard to get to step 10, um, in your career. Mm. So it's a balance. It's a, you know, like I, 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 as you've heard, I'm constantly listening to things. I'm constantly (laughs) suggesting new podcasts. I'm constantly going out, but that doesn't mean that every single time I listen to a podcast, I'm them going out and changing my approach with my dogs. I may incorporate it as I go Mm. forward. I take bits and pieces. I may consider it. I may try it out with a different, with a student next time. But um, it's really important to be fair to our dogs as far as kind of consistency. And again, sticking with a plan that you're Mm. partway down that is pretty good is better than kind of constantly trying to get a 2% improvement in your plan with a new idea every week. Yeah. All right. Well, we've gone a little bit long, so, but I know, thank you so much for having so many good questions. I think people are going to find this really helpful and there's a lot of good stuff in here for people at various stages of their detection journey. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for being a patron. Um, if you are interested in getting to do an episode like this for yourself, consider joining Patreon. This is not a guaranteed benefit, but if you reach out to me and ask and have some good questions, we will, uh, we'll, we'll consider it. Um, and for everyone at home, definitely thank you so much. And, you know, I hope you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can sign up for our canine conservationist handler course or Patreon, both at canineconservationist.org under the learn tab. You can buy merch, stickers, mugs, bento boxes, all that sort of stuff also on our website, canineconservationist.org. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.